Let's pray, and uh, let me, I hope, just encourage you with God's word this morning. So, Father, again, just thank you for the resurrection of Christ. Lord, our, uh, our central uh, theme, not just on Easter Sunday, but, but every Sunday and every day, every day, because, Lord, as Christians, we know that this, this is... Uh, the vindication of Christ. This is the, the, what proves that he is who he said he is, Lord, that your promises made in him are fulfilled and that we can celebrate, Lord, again, that our resurrections are secured in his. So may he be glorified this morning. May we be blessed and encouraged this morning. Lord, would you use me over these next few minutes to uh, just build up these men and women and, and children in front of me, Lord, with the hope that we have in Christ. And again, we pray all that in his name. Amen. 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 So I, I read an article uh, just a few days ago, and this article was written by a woman who was contemplating the resurrection of Jesus. This woman was recently widowed and her name is Clarissa Mole. The title of her article was this, Only One Empty Tomb. So this young widow was reflecting on her first Easter Sunday following the untimely death of her husband, Rob. He died in a, in a hiking accident uh, just at the age of 42 years old. So listen to what she wrote reflecting on that first Easter following his tragic death. She says, That first painful Easter, I thought a good Christian should rejoice with abandon in the face of grief. I should stand on the promises of Jesus and lift my eyes in unadulterated hope of eternal triumph. I should shout, O oh death, where is thy sting? Instead, all I could do was weep for all that yet remains unfinished. On that sunny Sunday morning, I lamented the curse that is defeated now and not yet. I cried for my beloved husband who still lies asleep in Christ. On that first Easter, I stood at a tomb looking for Rob to come out. But his grave in that quiet cemetery remains unchanged. Only Jesus' tomb is empty. And she goes on to say, there was a time when I would have questioned asking only one tomb? Isn't Jesus' resurrection enough? Then she admits, since Rob died, I've realized the empty tomb was never meant to fully satisfy our longings. How does that make you feel? The empty tomb of Jesus was never meant to fully satisfy our longings. Maybe you're a little confused by that. How could someone say that? Or maybe you can relate to her sentiments. Some of you have recently experienced death for loved ones. And some of you are 
right now facing the prospect of death for someone that you love or maybe even for yourself. How is the resurrection of Jesus relevant to your pain and sorrow? I think Clarissa is onto something significant here. I think she is. And saying that, I want to affirm yes, the resurrection of Jesus means everything for Christians, everything for us. By rising from the dead, by bursting out of the tomb, Jesus has vindicated his death. He's proven that he is indeed the God-man who could not only die for our sins on the cross, but rise again, defeating that death. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, where I had you turn, that the resurrection is the hinge upon which the whole Christian faith hangs. And I think he would even say further, it's the hinge upon which all of human history itself hangs. If Christ has not been risen from the dead, our faith is in vain. That's what he says. But since Christ has been raised, the sting of death and the power of sin have been broken and we can claim victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. He can claim victory. We can claim victory. Because he is who he said he is. And if he is who he said he is, we have been reconciled to God through him. That's the message of Easter and the message of Christianity. Amen and hallelujah. And you believe that, Christians. I know you do. So do I, as we should. And we should shout, amen and hallelujah. And yet, death does sting, doesn't it? It hurts. Easter can still be painful for those of us who are longing for more empty tombs. So Clarissa, I think, is right. And she's not alone. Because the apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, he agrees with her. He agrees with her. If we read on in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that the Corinthian church was asking similar questions about death and resurrection and expressing their own longings for more. And what Paul does here is he answers them with a hope that is anchored in Jesus' resurrection, but also promises something further, something to fully satisfy our longings. He promises more empty tombs. Look down at verse 20 of chapter 15. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul talks about two things in relation to the resurrection of Christ here. First, the fact, and second, the fruit, right? The fact and the fruit. The fact of the resurrection is the reason that our faith, again, is not in vain. 
it was promised and foretold in the scriptures. If you look over at verse 3 of chapter 15, he's talked about this already. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures. And it happened. It happened. And it was attested to by many witnesses who saw that it happened. Verse 5. And then he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. In other words, most of whom at the time of this writing, you could go ask. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul's saying it happened, and we are witnesses that it did happen. We are worshiping here this morning in 2022 because we've believed the testimony of these witnesses and the testimony of many other witnesses who followed in their steps. Belief in the resurrection is, yes, a matter of faith. It is. But it's not a faith rooted in myth or legend. It's rooted in fact, historical, verifiable fact. So that's what Paul is making the case for in the first half of chapter 15. And I want to move forward because now he wants us to understand, after demonstrating that's a fact, that it's also relevant to us. The relevance of the resurrection for Christians that goes beyond the vindication and validation of Jesus' death to forgive us of our sins. That's the wonderful good news of the gospel, that he died to forgive us of our sins. And the resurrection vindicates that death. But Paul goes beyond that. He says that the resurrection is also a pointer to more resurrections to come. He calls it the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep. He's talking about believers who have already died. But he intentionally uses this phrase, fallen asleep, to indicate that this rest of theirs in their death is a temporary one. In that sense, they've just sort of fallen asleep. When you and I tonight lay our heads down on our pillows and we fall asleep, you're going to fall asleep with the expectation of what? Tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up, right? And so we can view our deaths as followers of Christ in the same way. We die, yes, but we fall asleep, we'll wake up. So he's talking about resurrections to follow. But remember, he's talking about resurrected bodies here. Resurrected bodies. Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection, right? His body rose out of that grave. And so too will be ours. He served as the first fruits of more to come. Now, what does it mean? First fruits, I know that's kind of a foreign concept, but first fruits by definition means there's more fruit to follow. It's the first, there's more. And the, the term is borrowed from the idea of tithing 
to the Lord in the Old Testament. The tithe was supposed to be an offering of your first crops to God with the hope and the promise that there would be more crops to follow, right? Just the first fruits. So Paul's saying this is similar to the resurrection of the dead. Because Jesus has been raised bodily, we will be raised bodily as well if we belong to him. Now key in on that. Bodily, that's important. Bodily. Don't fall into the misconception that your eternal state in heaven will be some kind of disembodied existence, like you'll just be floating around in the clouds. That's the heaven of cartoons. That's not the heaven of the Bible. Right? The good news of the cross and the resurrection is that your salvation in Christ is total. It's holistic. He didn't just come to redeem your soul. He came to redeem the whole you, body and soul. If you are in Christ, your eternal existence in heaven will be a fully embodied redemption of everything that you know and everything that you are in this life except with no blemish or decay. That's what we're promised. Jesus' redemption of all creation will indeed include all of creation. Not just part of it. Bodies that have fallen asleep will be awakened. You know, as a pastor, I've done my share of funerals over the years. Uh, far more than I ever wanted to, unfortunately. But I'm going to let you in on a little uh, ritual of mine that I, I try to do at every funeral that I do, every time I'm, I'm in front of a casket, an open casket, uh, with someone lying in there before me, you're going to find that maybe initially this is a, a bit morbid, but every time I stand before an open casket, I make it a point to touch the body. Just reach out and, without sounding like uh, um, crass, like poke it, touch. And I do that because of something an older Christian told me one time about when his mother passed away. He was at her funeral. He was standing before her casket with his two sons, and they were very little at the time, and they were scared. They were, you know, kind of eyeball level with their, their lifeless grandmother in a box. And they were visibly shaken by that, and they didn't understand what was going on, and so their dad said to them, go ahead and touch her. He said, it's okay. Touch her. She's not really there. He wanted them to understand that their grandmother was actually quite alive in heaven with Jesus in that moment. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? This was just her earthly body. He wanted them to get that. So that's why I touch bodies at funerals. I hope it doesn't sound too morbid, but I, I want to remind myself of the same thing. They're not really there. But I also touch for another reason, and that's to also remind myself that this cold, lifeless body will not be cold and lifeless for long. That the person that I loved will be reunited with this body again soon in the new heaven 
and the new earth. That's what Paul promises here. Look at verse 21. He says, for, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. What Paul's doing is he's giving us a bit of a, a theology lesson here coupled with its practical application. The, the theological point that he's making here speaks to the concept of federal headship. You say, what, is, what does that mean? Well, Federal is a word that I think because we live in the United States, we, we have at least a pretty good idea of, of how that, that works, uh, right? We have 50 individual states, right? And they all kind of do their own thing in certain ways and they make their own laws, but, but we're united together by one federal government whose law supersedes that of the states and guides all of us equally as a nation. So anything that the federal government decrees applies to all of us who belong to the United States of America, right? That's what federal means. We're under this one federal head. So too, Paul speaks of Adam and Jesus as our federal heads. Adam is our first federal head, meaning we all die because Adam, in his sin, died. And that now applies to all of us. Like Adam, we are all sinners, and like Adam, we will all die. But God has sent a second Adam, a better Adam, so that all who are in Christ by faith shall be made alive again. Though we die in Adam, we are given new life again in Christ. He's your federal head, meaning that because he rose again, you're going to rise again. As our federal head, anything that he does applies to, again, all who belong to him. So the question that the Corinthians want to know, and so do we, is, but when? When? Those who are longing for more, those who aren't yet fully satisfied by just one empty tomb are wanting to know when this resurrection for all of us is going to happen. And so what Paul does here is he instructs us to be patient. He says, it's coming. It's coming. But it'll happen in God's timing. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. There's an order to God's resurrection plan. Jesus's was the firstfruits. The rest of ours, our resurrections, will happen, will come at his coming. And if you've been with us, on Wednesday nights, as we've studied through the book of Acts, you remember that in Acts chapter 1, we read of the resurrected Jesus ascending again into heaven after, after he had you know, risen from the dead and he meets with his disciples. He ascends again to heaven to be at his father's side and his disciples are standing there and they're watching him ascend up into the clouds. And as they're doing that, two angels appear next to them and say, guys, he's going to come back the same way that you saw him leave. 
That's what Paul's referring to here, at his coming. When he comes back in that same way, that's when our resurrections will occur. At his return, our graves are going to open up. And our resurrected bodies will ascend and be reunited with our souls again in the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 24, he says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. So we're still asking the question, when is all this going to happen? He says at that point, when he comes, he'll hand the kingdom to the Father. But right now, what's he doing? You have a hope. You have a future hope. The kingdom of God will be delivered to the Father with all of us, our whole selves, our body, our soul, redeemed and united with him together. What's Jesus doing now? It says he's reigning. He's reigning. His reign and rule have already begun, and they began at his resurrection. And Paul wants us to know that now he is actively at work in destroying every rule, every power, every authority that threatens his people. That's ongoing work. That's happening now. And he'll do that. He'll fight for us until all of his people have been brought in. And you might, you might say, well, why is he taking so long? I mean, 2,000 years it's been. Why is he taking 2,000 years so far? How much longer do we have to wait? Well, only the Father knows. But in the meantime, Jesus is on his throne and he reigns. And listen, you and I should be thankful that he is. And you and I should be thankful that he's waited 2,000 years because if he'd come any sooner, nobody in this room would have been included. There are spiritual forces and enemies being destroyed as we speak, but Paul says the last enemy, the last enemy remains. Look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Look up for a second. Death is still around, and you know that. But its days are numbered. Its days are numbered. It will be destroyed. Our bodies will not stay in the ground forever. Easter Sunday is a day to remember that death has already been defeated by the resurrection of Christ from his, day, from his grave. Death's death was sealed on that day. But as you and I know, it hasn't fully taken effect yet. Death still stings. Death was mortally wounded, yes, but it still wields some power. You know, even a, a dead bumblebee can still sting you. And a dead snake can still bite you. You know that? Their, their fate is sealed. They still wield some power, but, but you know this, not for long. Not for long. Jesus' resurrection is the signal that all of our resurrections are coming. They're coming. 
you might ask this morning, why, why are you choosing to tell us this today? Usually, Easter, you kind of focus on the first half of 1 Corinthians 15, you know, the, the historical reliability of the resurrection and what it means for the validity of our faith. Why am I choosing to tell you this today? Because along with Paul, I want you to know that Easter, as glorious as it is, as celebratory as it is, is still a day in which we should hold our breath in anticipation of more. It's okay to gaze upon the empty tomb this morning and be thankful and rejoice in gratitude and praise and still at the same time be honest enough to admit it's not yet enough. Some of you are carrying deep sadness knowing it's not yet enough and that's okay. The empty tomb was meant to stoke our longings for more. It really was. You know, at Christmas time, we talk about Advent. We talk about what Advent means. Advent is the, the hope of the Savior's arrival, his coming. And we talk about it as something that is both fulfilled in the birth of Christ at heaven, but also something that we're still waiting for in his return. Well, Easter is an Advent season too. It really is. It's the, the resurrection of Jesus is what we celebrate as happened and fulfilled. And it's, it's the fulfillment of our greatest need. Yes, our sins have been forgiven because Jesus died for them and rose again on the cross. But it's also, Easter, a down payment on the future fulfillment of our greatest longing. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So this new friend of ours, Clarissa, has something to teach us. She's on to something. And so I'm going to give her the final word. She finishes by saying this. She says, the world is still such a mess. And we can say, yeah, we agree. Disease and discord mark our days. Jesus' resurrection, the first fruits, has whet our appetites. But as we look around us, we can't help but long for more. We long for Christ, the lover of our souls, to come in glory. We eagerly await that day when the dead in Christ will rise and we shall ever be with the Lord. And each Easter, until Jesus returns, God asks us to trust a divine plan for which we can only see the beginning. As we celebrate another Easter, God invites us to stand in Joseph of Arimathea's garden where that empty grave stood to trust his plan, to trust his order, to trust his timing even when we don't understand it yet. He asks us to claim this one empty tomb again as the promise of all empty tombs to come. Take heart then as you wait this Easter. Resurrection's coming. Father, thank you for this great truth. And I, I do pray that you would just encourage us with it, Lord, even as we, we sort of, yeah, we live in this already not yet tension. 
We believe with all of our hearts that Jesus died for us and rose again. We're, we sing these songs this morning. We, we read these passages. We pray these prayers. We do the call and response. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And we mean it, Lord. We mean it. We're so grateful. We're so thankful. And yet, Lord, yes, we wait. We're waiting. Come, Lord Jesus. More empty tombs. We long for that day. So in the meantime, Lord, I pray that you would especially be near to the brokenhearted. Be especially near to those in this room who have so recently lost loved ones. Who so recently been, been stung by that, that blow of death. And I pray that you would just remind them that in due time, resurrection's coming. Death is dead. It's just, a, it's just a wounded, mortally wounded bumblebee. And Lord, give us just tremendous hope to live the days that you have set before us as we wait, taking heart, Christ is risen from the dead, and so will we. Thank you for our whole salvation in Christ. May you stir our hearts to praise you as you alone are worthy. Only you could do this, and you've done it. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Spirit. Amen.